As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, I'm Paddy Cooper, Artistic Director of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited. Speaking to you from, and I don't know if you can hear it, but uh, an atmospherically rainy Northern Ireland. I hope that you and those that you love have had a good Christmas or other winter holiday uh, to celebrate, and um, that the spectre of 2020 hasn't uh, impinged too much on the festivities. 2020 has, of course, been a disastrous year for so many of us, um, whether it be those of us in the arts family who have seen uh, jobs and livelihoods uh, disappear overnight, theatres closed, film sets shut down, albeit temporarily, or, of course, the much more human cost of the coronavirus in the tens of thousands of people who have lost their lives this year. And to the families and friends of those, of course, our thoughts are with you. For those of us in the arts family, it has also touched that which we took most for granted, the spirit of creativity and the ability to practice that creativity as a means of making a living. The Actors Benevolent Fund and the other many, many charities that are under the Acting for Others umbrella, as well as sundry other smaller industry charities, have been inundated with requests for help. And those of us in the smaller independent producing sector have also had to do our share of asking for support. And I'm afraid on this occasion this is no different. If you wish to help us in any way to... Um, undertake what we hope will be uh, an action-packed 2021 with a rescheduled tour and a new strand of radio dramas, all of them conducted under our spirit of ethical employment, you can go to darkunicorn.org. That's darkunicorn.org. And either make a one-off donation or sign up to our patron scheme, where for as little as £50 a year, you or a loved one can receive a panoply of artistic benefits. However, with all that put to one side, it is our pleasure and our privilege to bring you a festive special of our 
2020 online series, Dark Unicorn in Conversation. It's been a real honor for me to um, interview so many people from across the world of the arts and learn so much about the exceptional work that they do. We've been able to have people of higher and lower profile uh, from right across the artistic spectrum, visual arts, music, dance, theater, film, television. All of them have added to the breadth of knowledge that certainly I've attained, and I hope those of you who have been tuning in have too. And it seems right that we should give a, a little festive present to those of you who have been tuned in. We are, of course, now in that bizarre period between Christmas and New Year where we don't know what day it is, what we're supposed to be doing, where we're supposed to be. In fact, it's been much like any other day in 2020, particularly for those of us that have been working from home. However, we know that just around the corner is the prospect and the hope of a bright new year. And there is somebody who, for the last nearly 30 years, has been making that new year special for those of us tuned in to BBC Two. He started out most prominently as a member of the band Squeeze with such hits as Cool for Cats and Up the Junction. He went on to be one of the faces of the iconoclastic music and entertainment show The Tube on Channel 4, which became a vital touchstone for all those who wanted to keep abreast of the latest development on the music scene. His flagship show, Later, has been part of the BBC's music uh, lineup for also very nearly 30 years and has launched and um, enhanced the careers of so many people from Amy Winehouse, the Buena Vista Social Club, uh, Rag and Bone Man, uh, and many, many, many countless others besides. He is Britain's own king of boogie-woogie, Mr Jules Holland. And it was my great pleasure to be able to speak to him via Zoom in his home in Kent uh, a short while ago so that we could offer this to you ahead of his 2020-2021 Hootenanny. Enjoy. Um, Jules, of all the nearly countless options stretching across your long and distinguished career in music, what is your favourite chord progression? Well, the one that I was last struggling with yesterday, because I think that's the great thing about music, is that it is constantly showing you a new face mm -hmm. and a new uh, experience. And so I think it's a bit like when people say, what's your favourite song? It's the, one, the last one that you wrote. You know, if it's like, what's your favourite child? You, you don't want to offend the other children by saying, oh, well, I particularly like this one. But I think chord progressions, it's a very good question, Paddy, because chord progressions are, you know, when coupled with the right melody and the right rhythm, well, the thing that makes the, the, the order out of the chaos of the universe. So mm. I think it's, yeah, I was listening to um, Brahms and Deutsch's uh, Requiem yesterday. That had, some nice, that had a nice chord progression in it. So that was pretty good, yeah. Yours was a, a, a slightly peripatetic childhood, um, several moves, a bit of ducking and diving, um, but I get the sense from what I've read that you had the good sense to find it all quite exciting rather than terrifying. Do you think it gave you a good grounding for the touring life? Uh, I don't know if uh, my childhood gave me a good grounding for my uh, touring life. Well, except 
but, but it gave me a very good grounding for a cultural life because I was exposed to lots of music and art and literature from a very early age. So uh, that was a great benefit, and, and which gave me an interest in the things around me. So, for instance, if I'm on tour um, looking at, uh, uh, you know, I'll go and look at the buildings or the art collections that are in that area or in that city, you know, and in, as you're touring around, um, Britain and Europe and everything, there are some fantastic collections of things to go and look at. So I think it stimulated my interest in culture by hearing lots of great um, classical music and jazz music and stuff like that, as well as the pop music you're getting, as uh, which we all get off of the popular culture that's around us. So I was I was sort of getting a lot of sort of high culture as well. So. I think that was probably the great benefit of, uh, of my childhood. I don't think it prepared, so it prepared me for touring as a tourist who enjoyed a nice holiday, looking at cultural sites um, and reading up on a place before I'd go. But I don't think it prepared me for um, uh, dealing with um, having to sleep in the same room as a lot of smelly people, which are the other music, which was everybody does when they first start. Now, of course, I travel sort of like um, a medieval king, fast suite and a retinue and everything. Mm. questions as she hangs onto the wall I kiss her for the first time and then I take her home I'm invited in for coffee and I give the dog a bone, she likes to go to discos but she's never on her own I said I'll see you later and I'll give her some old chat but it's not like they on the TV when it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats Your first major moment in the public sun, uh, obviously with Squeeze, though let's not overlook your first studio session with now Jane County, punctually named track entitled Fuck Off, for those of you who don't already know that by Jules. How does a, a Southampton lad who's always going to have sort of boogie-woogie as his first love end up at the heart of the music scene that surrounded the punk movement? Well, I think, of course, again, that's a very good question, if I may say so, but because... Uh, curiously, I think historically, Boogie Woogie, which, you know, the, that music which people have a spontaneous dance to, you know, it goes back as old as uh, to the, to the, to the, to before the greatness of Greece, before the power of Rome, people were dancing in fields or wherever in little, when there was nice music around the fire of an evening, you know, that's the root of what sort of Boogie is. And, um, so, and that spirit of spontaneity and slight rebellion lurks in the heart of boogieists. I think the other thing was that the, the, when punk music was first coming up, it sort of lived alongside in a strange sort of underground world, sort of the rhythm and blues world. I think the other record I played at the same time, about the same time as, as, uh, as Wayne County, was one by the Count Bishops, who was sort of British R&B group, and like people like the Dr. Feelgood. 
that the, uh, and I think one of the similarities between the music of punk and the music of, of the rhythm and blues and the blues and 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 boogie woogie is that the um, protagonists were not particularly bothered about what people thought of them, and I think there was a certain couldn't care lessness. Now I'm not saying that, that I'm not saying this as, as a criticism, but just as an observation. If we look at a lot of uh, television programs which are like a, a competition, you know, where the people want, want to win a sort of a, a thing, they want to be the best band or whatever like that, you know, it's all about um, minding what people think of you. Whereas the boogiest and the punkiest is like, this is what we do. If you don't like it, then fuck off. And that was a sort of the attitude. And there was a, so they had this shared attitude. So there was a sort of a shared respect. And there was also a shared understanding and love of the naivety of the playing which actually is much harder to what appears to be naive is actually really hard to do if you wanted to make a really great record like the sex pistols it's a really hard quite a hard thing to do or a clash record they're hard records to make you know boogie appears to the untrained outsider might appear to be simple but it's far from it to get it right it's really quite uh, it's a lifetime's work or to or or it's found in the moment of just finding that right feel, but it's all around about the feel, you know. The success that you attained with uh, Squeeze came at a time in your life when you were still really, well, very young. Um, did you find that sort of success and, and the trappings thereof suited you, or was it a difficult transition? Well, I think that people who are in groups largely when they have their first success don't get much money out of it. Pretty unusual if they do. You know, everybody normally gets scammed first of all um, and then does better later on because they've learned to be a bit more careful. Maybe scammed is the wrong word, but um, often groups when they start that, you know, when we were having, you know, we, we had a sort of big hits in England, but we'd be touring in the back of a van in America trying to break that place. So there was, it was, we were always looking at the next thing and we weren't really, and we, we did okay, but we weren't sort of, um, we weren't like sort of living a Beatles style life thing or anything like that. And so I think it came more gradually, the, the, the success and the trappings of success, that sort of thing. Um, but I think it matters little really um, not matters a little. It's not, it's, you want those, you know, you want to, to, to be able to, it's good to be able to have money to do things with. But the, your object, of course, has to remain the same, which is to try and find what the best thinking of music, you know, that you'll find trying to look for that sort of thing that you, you're looking for that thing that you, you can't find. You're trying to unlock the jigsaw all the time of music, you know. So that's the real thing. But when Squeeze really first happened, I, I wouldn't say it was like we were, it was rags to riches, it was more rags to rags. And then when we got a gold record, I remember one of the presentations, Gilson the drum said, oh, that's nice. I can put this over a damp patch in my bed sitting room. You know, it was that. There's a, there's a, there's a bit of a catch up which has to happen. Um, the, um, in um, the uh, research materials that I was going through, I, I have an interview that you gave about 15 years ago where you said you left Squeeze because, quote, I like a benign, a benign dictatorship and with Squeeze I wasn't the dictator. Is, is control, creative or otherwise, still important to you as, as an artist and as a businessman as a, and as a person? Uh, um, yeah, I think uh, as an artist it certainly is you, you, because... Um, it's a bit like, uh, you know, if you ask a lot of musicians what they what they listen to, 
the truth of the music, that is, the truth of it is they listen to themselves. They've got to listen to themselves to understand what they're doing. You know, not obsessively, but you've got to listen back to yourself to understand what it's all about. And, and, and it's an interest in your own music and trying to figure it out has ultimately got to guide you. A lot of musicians who are great, they're happy to just play other people's music. But I've always pretty much played my own music or the music that I love, or the stuff I've written, but that I love by other people. And I'm sort of being guided by that. And I think that you, you, by committee, it's pretty hard. And generally in groups, you know, it's, it, you get, often in groups, you get one person that is really the, the powerful creative force. And after a few years, you notice they become a solo artist is, is sort of what happens. You know, historically, that happens a lot. Sometimes in groups, which is the case in Squeeze, actually, you get lots of creative people. Um, and that's great for the group. But often, it will, you know, it is unlikely to last a long time because they, if you've got lots of creative people, they've all got to do their own thing. But ultimately, that's what's going and of course, not only did your solo career arise out of your your, your leaving squeeze, but it, it also chimed in with opening the door to your sort of secondary career as a broadcaster and, and the irreverent bustle of of uh, the tube, which I think uh, history now judges as a, a signally important programme and expanding the country's musical horizons at the time. Um, I know you've said before that, that there was a, a certain amount of the, the edginess of yours and, and Paulie Yates' presenting style came out of uh, the initial audition, not necessarily wanting to go to Newcastle every week. But once you were in the thick of it, did you get a feeling for how vital a show that was going to be? Uh, once, it's, uh, once it started, uh, I mean, uh, once it was uh, sort of established itself after a few shows, uh, you got the feeling that it would it would enter popular culture. I noticed, I realised, you know, people recognised me in the street. You know, um, were being asked to do lots of other things. I mean, one of the the um, you know the tube was hit lots of spots at the right time. It was in the right time, at the right place, and it was generally it was it really was like the sort of lunatics had taken over the asylum. It was an interesting sort of it was spontaneous and anarchic, but it wasn't contrived which a lot of things are, and I don't think you could do it again. It was also at a time when television was quite a different world. You could just say, should I do this? And you wouldn't even write it down. They give you the money and you go and do something. Now you've got to sort of write everything out, what you're going to be doing and all of this. And, and uh, it's much harder to get um, things done. Um, so it was a particularly great time for that. And there were new things coming out, both in the world of music and comedy at the time. You know, there's all that new wave of comedy with the comic strip and all those sort of people who were doing something slightly different. So it was kind of a great time to be in. And the tube was a good part of being in that time. 
Um, and it was great that it was in Newcastle because that made it into something uh, special. And the other thing that was, was, was because it, it was great being in Newcastle because all the artists and all the people on it would have to go there um, and have a night there the night before, which, was, which made it into an event in itself. So when you came to doing the show, you'd all been sort of, you know, hammering it the night before together, which was great. It gave you a certain excitement or certain vibration that was great. Also, the other thing is they would put them on for 26 weeks at a time. Now, it's ever such a lot, but that was great because they were just on every week, you know, having to fill these shows up. And having a run like that gave it enough time to make itself, to, to discover its, find its feet and evolve into something. And it also, they had these films, so it was meant you could just get a film crew and we went off and I filmed a film in New Orleans. We did one in, um, uh, you know, you do one in Liverpool, you do one in... Amsterdam, I think we'd go to cities and film and try and capture them. So there was lots of stuff going on. And at the time, the other broadcasters, they were making perfectly nice shows, but they, they, they appeared to be a bit earnest compared to us. We were a bit more fun, really, you know. Well, that's all. <laughs> that's what's known in the television game as ruddy confusing. There's one to put in your notebook. Nobody knew what was going on, did they? No. Well, we are probably the, the most charitable. Um, program uh, on at the moment uh, because uh, we'd like to tell you about all the other music events that you can see. For instance, we're going to shock you, the viewers at home, and the um, people who make the Oxford Road Show by telling you what you can see on there later. They've got Paul Young as a guest presenter, Billy Ocean, Strawberry Switchblade playing live, um, Paul King of King, Helen Slater, and Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran. So they've got lots of stuff on as well if you're not completely sick of this whole music gubbins by the time... Uh, that's happened. Anyway, next week we've got Chaka Khan, loads of her, and here is a video of her latest single. Do you know what it's called? No, there you go. Not do I. Uh, keeping with your, your broadcasting career, we're now only a, only a couple of years away from the 30th anniversary of Later, um, during which time you not only helped the notion rediscover its love for some of the uh, great musical talents, but have also boosted and often launched the careers of dozens of, of now hugely successful recording artists. What makes a format like Later have such an enduring appeal over such a long period of time? Is it just our constant well, thirst for, for newness? Well, there's a couple of, there's a, if you wanted to look at the overall picture of music on the television, um, generally, uh, um, when there was Top of the Pops, when there were charts, when people used to sell records, people used to tune into that because you could see what the charts were. They sort of then, when that, sh when that show stopped, that kind of, it was a pop show, that kind of, that world sort of crumbled. Well, not crumbled, because you still have great artists doing stuff, but there were less outlets, and they used to have the old grey whistle test, but that finished. The tube had finished, so when we started later, we had ideas about what it was going to be, but it evolved. But the most important thing to really know, um, and it's uh, uh, the BBC is the only people that would, would, would do a music show because it's part of their remit to... Uh, to public broadcasting. The music shows generally cost a bit to make and they don't get big viewers, big viewing figures at the time. Although, of course, nowadays with YouTube, it means some, some people will perform on our show and maybe when it goes out, we get maybe three quarters of a million or a million people watch it. But after the event on YouTube, you might get 25 million people watch it, which is quite an extraordinary thing. You get other shows that might get millions of people watch at the time, but they never watch it again. It goes out and they forget about it. So it has a very long lifespan, our show. It also, part of the 
thing we decided was that we wanted to, it was is a home for music that doesn't always have a home elsewhere on the television. You know, if you're a huge star, you can go on Graham Norton or you can go on the one show. If you're not that, it's hard, there's less outlets. And especially if you're, you might be very well known in, the, in your own world of, of maybe reggae music, or folk music, or uh, uh, um, whatever the genre is. Um, but you're, you know, so we wanted to give a voice to that music. Also, some of the art, there's some amazing legends of music that don't have a home anywhere on the television. If when Johnny Cash came over, where was he going to play? Not really, he's not really a tele TV to have him, but he could come with us and play something proper. And it gives, so it gives a platform to that as well as new people and as well as the huge stars of today. So it was keeping a balance of all those things. That was part of the important, that's been part of the important ethos of the programme. Um, uh, which retains the the the, the, the sort of broadcasting values of a public broadcaster, because if it wasn't that, you know, if the, if the show were, uh, you know, I did do some shows in America called uh, Night Music, which was a similar sort of an idea, but they were and they were like had jazz people, but they, but in America or somewhere else, people would say, well, hang on a minute, why don't you just have really famous and popular people on? Wait a minute, let's not have them on. And the whole point of us is not what we. If we had a show where it was just famous and popular people that we wouldn't be doing the job properly and everybody wouldn't, it would be a disappointment because you'd never discover anybody new and you'd never discover anybody who was from a world of music who might be, you know, the, the best player or the most exciting and interesting person from, you know, like the Buena Vista Social Club, where would they go? They come to our show, but they can't go somewhere else. So there's, you know, there's a lot of reasons and the show didn't, wasn't that when it first started, we wasn't quite sure what it was, but it, over a few years, it evolved into this thing that was a home for this mix of music. And I think people's, people nowadays, uh, in the, you know, there are good and bad things about the modern world, but one of the good things is I think people have much more, much broader taste in music than they used to, because they don't, you know, it used to be people say, well, I like, heavy metal so I couldn't possibly like reggae or folk or whatever it is so you know therefore you, you, you but um but now I think people are much more broad-minded and they they're uh, you know partly because I think they're educated through uh, hearing music through films and things like that and adverts they sort of get a taste for sorts of music and so um that's why the the show kind of works and it's also it's a flagship because it's sold all around the world you know, to countries, because no other countries do one like it. We're, we're the only place that has a show like this. Uh, of the, the emerging artists that, that you've um, introduced to a wider audience through the show, was there um, was there a moment with any one of those where you realised that you had made a major discovery? I mean, I suppose that you must have had many moments like that, but uh, I suppose what was the, the first moment where you felt 
um, that we're doing something really serious for, for emerging artists? Um, I think, uh, yeah, I suppose when the Britpop thing happened, we were, we were then, we were on then. So that's, I remember Oasis coming on and, and uh, Blur and um, Suede and people, and you could feel that was uh, not both, both those artists individually, uh, but also there was sort of a new load of young British artists that the world was listening to, which was great. So that was a good being part of something. I remember that. But then sometimes people would come on Amy Winehouse. I mean, she'd been on my radio program, which is where she first appeared. Um, and then she came and you just heard her voice and you thought it's like, wow, this is like, she's just got this great voice. She's like Edith Piaf or Bessie Smith or something. She's like a historic figure of Sarah Vaughan or something. You know, she just has an amazing voice. Knowledge, great knowledge, you know. Uh, Celeste is a new artist that's on, she's been on recently, you know. There's, there's, and you hear the voice and you go, that's such, she's got something, you know. And it's, well, it's wonderful sound, you know, when you hear it. And the thing is, of course, though, you hear people that are fantastic, but it doesn't always mean to say that they're going to kind of go on to be successful because sometimes either their things will trip people up and they don't go on to that great success. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. We can't conduct an interview with you without discussing the Jill Holland Rhythm and Blues Orchestra, uh, which has grown and developed over a quarter of a century to be an incredibly exciting contemporary big band, and certainly I have to say, uh, I know that my colleague Eleanor and myself, um, one of our um, favourite musical uh, live music experiences was standing at our, our University May Ball in 2005 watching you and the, the, the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra in Aberystwyth Arts Centre. Um, would you describe the band as, a, as is it a family, is it a firm, or is it just a, a long-running and very joyous jam? Well, I think that, you know, if it, the history of the Rhythm and Blues Orchestra is something that evolved. Mm. And if you said to, I think, if you said to somebody, right, I have a big band, it's like almost impossible. You can't pay to, you know, you can't pay to keep it going and, and we'll build up the relationships. But what happened is we started, there was just me and the drummer, then we played in Edinburgh, and um, and then uh, a bass player joined us. Um, Mark, our guitar player, was playing with somebody else, so he joined us. And then we were playing with that. And then as we started to get a bit more popular, playing in slightly bigger places, the band seemed to grow. There was a thing called the Depth of Dance Orchestra that had a number of horn players, which is like an amateur dance orchestra, really, a big band. And we I did some shows with them because I liked the sound of it. And then, then some, I think four of them joined us. And then the real great day was when Rico Rodriguez, the Jamaican legend, um, who's one of the inventors of ska music and everything, and he'd been living in London. I'd known him for a while, and he rang up and said, oh, I've, I've, uh, you've got any gigs at the moment? I said, yeah, come and join us. So he joined, 
And then he invited his friend, Michael Bami Rose. And um, what I'm getting at is the whole thing sort of evolved. Um, and as it, as the band evolved into a physically bigger numbered band, the audience who we were playing to also evolved into a bigger audience, which meant we could afford to, could afford to pay a bigger band. And then we, you know, we, recorded lots of records and and so yeah it had gone on so it's remarkable i don't i can't it still seems it still seems unbelievable that we have achieved sort of staying on that long because even back in the day when they had big bands they it was hard for them to hold out for that long yeah. um and it is like a sort of a family feel you know ruby turner was saying that day because we've all known one another a long time some people have children and grown up and blah 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 and, um, and so it is a it's, it's a nice feeling and and of course when you there are people that you play with all the time it's much easier to spontaneously, um, uh, you know, you don't have, you know, sometimes we have arrangements that are written out, but a lot of the time we'll just play something spontaneously. It'll sound fine because we've played together so often. It's, 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 you can, that, that playing comes out. If you just got a load of session musicians together, they'd have to have something written down, you know. You've mentioned Ruby Turner and you certainly do continue to have, um, best in the biz in terms of vocals um and i have to say i was lucky to see the band and you still had, had sam brang with you before she tragically lost her singing voice and that must have been i mean as well as a great loss to herself that must have been a great loss to all of you as well yeah i mean that was awful i think that we, i was talking about that actually i was talking to melanie c the other day and sam brown who i wrote a lot of great songs with mm. and who um uh you know, it's an amazing singer, really an amazing singer. And also because her attitude, she had quite a punk attitude, you know. And, and she used to come out and tear into the song. People would be like, whoa, what's going on here? She was so great. And then she had a problem with her, her voice, physical problem, and now can't sing like she did. And it's a pretty awful thing for anybody to lose the thing, the one thing you're really good at, but it also then changes your lifestyle. Um, and it's like, you know, with music, a lot of musicians, they don't, do, they don't really do it just with the money. They do it because that's their lives, you know. And it was, so I speak to Sam from time to, some, from time, to time. And she plays ukulele, but um, uh, it's just a sort of a, a, a tragic loss of a fantastic voice. You, you mentioned earlier that these days, as you say, travel like a, a, a medieval king. And you are, of course, a, a deputy lieutenant for the county of Kent, representing the Queen as required. And, and life now also includes a, a, a Kentish castle and, uh, and a wife from the same aristocratic line as my business partner. Um, does this make you the boogie-woogiest member of the establishment now? Sounds like you've been reading the newspaper, <laughs> um, which is always a mistake because... Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, generally, um, um, because um, you, yeah, you get a sort of uh, yeah. Anyway, but the um, um, the uh, we've got a new Lord Lieutenant in Kent. Um, mm. Start that again. Um, uh, but yeah, the Lord Lieutenants in, in generally in each county do a lovely job oh. promoting the uh, the county identity and also saying thank you to lots of people who work really hard who do things like you know, lots of charitable works or work hard in public services. And think, for instance, at the moment, when there's lots of people um, you know, in, in the NHS working very hard and, or, you know, the, and the Queen can't personally, although she'd like to, go and thank everybody. So she, um, get, uh, Lord Lieutenants do it locally um, and help promote 
uh, good works around the county. And in turn, their deputies, where they can't go, they step in. So it does, it does, it's a, it's a very uh, benign and, and, and does great kindly works around each county, which is the patchwork, which England is, is or Britain is, is, is just, you know, each county has its own identity, which I think is wonderful. It's, you know, if you go to uh, um, Norfolk, it's completely different. The buildings that are, and everything are completely different to if you were in County Durham, or the, the bricks are another colour again in Lancashire, and they're different, they look different again in Sirencester and in, in Gloucestershire. You know, that's what's great. And they help promote that, the, the differences, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, most importantly, um, help celebrate the inhabitants of those counties that are doing great works. Yes, indeed. And uh, we, as a, as a company, have, have had um, very cordial uh, exchanges with the Lieutenancy for East Sussex. So uh, certainly echo... Um, uh, you might, you might, uh, might get a Queen's Award to industry. Who, who, <laughs> can you hear me, right? Yes, I can. Yes, we've got a couple of Well, yes, you never know. Um, Jules, what do you still want to achieve, whether that be in life, in music, or in model railways? Well, I think to um, you, to just carry on, really. I, I've, I'm a very, um, I'm very fortunate because I. Uh, I love my work, so I, I've never really done a day's work in in that sense of it because I've always enjoyed doing it very much. Um, so I like to continue doing that, and I think to continue the pleasure to continue to find pleasure in trying to work out the mysteries of music and um, and, and the world around me and find things. Uh, continue to find things. I think there's always, I think generally planning for the future is very good for people. Mm. Taking a positive view of the future, you know, is very good. But at the same time, as the great gurus always tell us, you know, um, it's not yesterday there was a great golden age or tomorrow it'll all be better. But paradise is now. This is the very moment mm. that you and I are discussing these issues. You are, as we, we come towards the, the the, the conclusion of this part of the interview, you are and have been for many years now the, the, the King of New Year with your annual Hootenanny. Uh, we will be broadcasting this, this interview just before New Year. Um, what world would you like to see emerge in 2021 from the seemingly endless ashes of 2020? Uh, well, it would be quite good to have a healthy world. Um, uh, and it would be quite, I think people would be quite keen to say farewell to this year and welcome in the new year in the, in the hope that it's going to be much better than this last year because I think this last couple of years have been pretty, um, you know, there's, there's a, it's either, you know, there's a, either, either there's a divisive world going out on or, or if not that there's a, everybody's being sick. And I think it's good to get past that and, and try and move on and try and have a positive way. And I think perhaps everybody will be just perhaps a little bit friendlier and go to the pub if there's any pubs left that are open. Jill, in the, in the governments we have left, um, we, um, as this will be the last, the, the last in conversation of, of the year for us, um, we will uh, end as, as we began with the first one, uh, which is we... we tip our caps to James Lipton, who was a friend of Inside the Actors Studio in New York, and he used to end his 
uh, interviews with, regardless of who the subject was, the same very quick questions. Um, what's your favourite word? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'll have to be careful how I answer that. Um, but I quite like the word scale today. Today we'll have scale. And your least favourite word? Um, Papa and mache used to annoy me very much as a child when I heard that word. Just maybe not why using that word is a stupid word, but Papa and mache, what does that mean? It's really annoying. Learn screwed up newspaper. Why, uh, why put a pretentious sounding French name that sounds like it should be like a French chateau, you know, wine or something? Or 62 Papa and mache. No, it's like it's a load of screwed up newspaper. So that used to make me quite cross. You're not going to use that word, are you? <laughs> Can do. What what excites you? Um, the next thing that uh, um, I'm going to discover, I suppose. The next, um, yeah, I suppose. What, whatever, yeah. I you, I think that is. We haven't toured for a year now. Getting on for a year, um, and I used to very much like. I enjoy going to. I enjoy looking at places. Particularly, I used to love uh, touring around Europe because there's lots of, I, I like the, the buildings, the paintings, the different cultures and these. And so I'm excited about getting back and doing that. And what absolutely turns you off? Um, what absolutely turns me off? Um, um, uh, people that bang on. <laughs> so, <laughs> people with opinions and views actually I think. <laughs> what uh, what sound or noise do you most love my own voice definitely and what sound or noise do you hate my own voice <laughs> what is your favorite swear word well uh it was it's also comes as my one of my favorite words but i've got to um be clear that it's a medieval word, Shakespearean word, mm. and it's used. If you, it's, it's very important to understand its use. If you look at it in the Oxford Dictionary, it's a word that doesn't appear in American dictionaries because it has a different meaning there. Uh, but in the Oxford Dictionary, it is female genitalia, um, a stupid or annoying person, and that's a very important part of it. Stupid or annoying person, not just annoying be stupid person as well foolish sorry it's foolish so uh and it begins with c and ends with t my favorite word the swearing word <laughs> and i apply it to myself generally <laughs> um what profession other than your own would you like to attempt well i've been very lucky in that um, I've done the other odd things here and there. I've designed some buildings which I've enjoyed and built. I've liked that. Um, but I don't think I'd like the job of an architect. Um, you know, I've, uh, as a boy, like everybody else, I wanted to be um, sort of a, a police inspector, but I don't think I'd be very good at that. Um, I think whatever I chose, I don't think I'd be that all that good at, really. So I think I was fortunate I chose the right thing. <laughs> so well, I don't. If I was to do something else. I don't know what it would be. Maybe um, uh, I remember my brother. Somebody saying to my brother, "Oh, we've got this friend. He's an asset stripper. He's made all this money. 
So my brother said, well, I'll do that. And they said, but you don't know anything about asset stripping. So I do it. So what is it? And he said, well, I'd get some assets and then I'd strip them. Of of things, really. I was going to ask what professional do you absolutely not want to do, but I think you probably covered that. Um, If, uh, whatever your beliefs may have been on earth, if when you get to the far side, you discover that heaven exists, what would you like to hear said to you on arrival? Um, I suppose uh, what I wouldn't like to hear said to me, I'm sorry, there's been an awful mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but I think what I'd like what I'd uh, I'd like to hear said to me oh here uh, we've got a room along there go in there and you can there's a lot of people you've got to thank is that okay I'd say yeah (laughs) the last question which which doesn't normally feature but I will ask because of the time of year that this is going out who following on from what you'd like said to you when you arrive at heaven who given that you'll have your pick, would be the lineup for your first heavenly hootenanny? Well, I think I'd probably have... Um, I'd probably have uh, Bach doing the string arrangements with Handel, with sort of contemporaries. I'd get them doing the, the string arrangements. Um, I'd probably have um, a Lyle Hampton orchestra play. Uh, with um, maybe, um, and I get maybe, well, I guess maybe a big Joe Turner singing with him, I'd quite like that. Maybe Bessie Smith. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'd probably get John Lennon writing some songs. Uh, I could probably get Amy Winehouse doing a couple of us, coming in sitting for a couple of numbers. Um, and then I'd get me on the piano with them, and I'd enjoy that very much. Well, of course, you have the hell of a tendency, so you can you can you can mix it up as much as you like. But for now, Jules Holland, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a great pleasure chatting to you, and um, I hope this has been satisfactory. And uh, I hope you have a lovely New Year, Paddy. Thank you very much indeed, and the same to yourself. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn Conversation, where Paddy Cooper is speaking to Jules Holland. See music by Curtis Batson, special thanks to David James Lipson, the BBC, Guardian, Internationally, Southwell, Jane County, Lightning Records, Guerrero, Rex, Feature, Channel 4, Red Friends, Squeeze, A&M Records, Jules Holland's Federal Archive, Cantor Online, Love Norfolk, The Daily Telegraph, The Sun, York Press, Music Air, The Belt, Manifest Social Club, Stage Vamer, Winehouse, Sam Brown, Lionheld, Vintage TV, and all other artists depicted. The show was executive produced by Elmer Stoughton.